You're listening to the New Century Multiverse, the Cartographer's Handbook, Remastered. Part 3. Our Course of Action. Section 7. Reclaiming Our Cities. Since 1790, every decade has been marked with a census of our largest cities. We were, for that period, a growing nation, and by 1850 the number of cities covered had expanded to 100. Since the Civil War we have had one single census in 1870. This was the last year that the systems required to conduct such a survey were in place. This is, as you may have correctly learned, because our cities are now overrun by the Wendigo. Let us look at the numbers gathered on that last census for only the ten most populated areas. At number one, New York, 942,000. Number two, Philadelphia, 679,000. Number three, Brooklyn, 396,000. Number four, St. Louis, 310,000. Number five, Chicago, 298,000. Number six, Baltimore, 267,000. Number seven, Boston, 250,000. Number eight, Cincinnati, 216,000. Number nine, New Orleans, 191,000. And number 10, San Francisco, 149,000. The grand total was just shy of 3.7 million bodies with 90 more cities on that list. As anybody who was there when the outbreaks first occurred will know, the panic and chaos that gripped each one of those cities was biblical in magnitude. Great swathes of refugees fled to the west. The infected dug in and nested, and the streets became a lawless, godless, desolate ruin. Many fleeing trains of refugees encountered waves of the infected on their way through and thus added to the seemingly ceaseless tide. It is impossible to tell how many lost their lives around the period between 1872 and 1880, or how many succumbed to infection and joined the ranks of the Wendigo. It is, however, possible to extrapolate from census count the scaling severity of events based on population concentration and surmise that the most densely populated city of New York is now the biggest nest of Wendigos in our nation. And on a sliding scale downward from there, a likely similar case for every city that has not yet been reclaimed. They do not stay confined. In fact, the creatures radiate out from each human settlement and into the surrounding countryside as the circular ripples left by stones tossed in a mill pond. Like all natural predators, they roam close to the meat. However, despite numerous wide-ranging individuals, the nests appear to be within the cities, and it is to these that they return. We are looking now at a largely rural human population divided into scattered pockets and settlements that have managed to hold out for up to 11 years against the creatures, along with disease, famine, and assault from other animals, hostile Indians, and the multitudes of nomadic, 
private militias that have sprung up over the years. Make no mistake, the cities are the key to our national future. We cannot live alongside these creatures as brothers. Their infectious bodies make them too much of a long-term threat. In time, every man, woman, and child breathing air today will succumb without two vital actions, cooperation and counterattack. Quite simply, if we do not cooperate, we will not find the strength to survive. If we do not counterattack and claim back our cities, whilst at the same time exterminating this threat to our very existence, then we will cease to be human. Everything mankind has achieved in his span on this earth will be for nothing. The Wendigo will prowl our homes, our fields, our graveyards, never understanding how important they were to the people now gone. The Battle of Washington In 1875, when the infection reached Washington, D.C., Despite a desperate struggle for control, the city was abandoned in the tumultuous months that followed. There were heavy casualties in the government itself, and the survivors regrouped in the nearby city of Manassas. President Ulysses S. Grant, already a seasoned military leader having commanded the Federal Union Army to eventual victory during the Civil War, made retaking the District of Columbia a priority, and by March 1880, had assembled a suitably sized military force to do so. Grant's army marched the 40 miles towards the capital, eradicating the Wendigo as they did so, to find themselves facing some 13,000 creatures, roughly one-tenth of the population prior to infection. Having carefully assessed this amassed Wendigo infestation over the interim five years, Grant had surmised that he would need two men for every creature, each one trained specifically in how to dispatch them. His army numbered 26,142, just over a quarter of the force he had commanded 17 years previously at Gettysburg. Unlike that battle, the largest fought on American soil, where the Confederate forces of over 70,000 men suffered heavy losses equating to 23,000 killed or wounded, this was a fight that could leave no survivors on the opposing side. We could not expect our enemy to surrender, and we could not let him flee. Every bite-related injury sustained by our troops counted as another victory for the Wendigo, and another arduous, heartbreaking execution for us. Many who sustained bites fought on valiantly, often for several hours, alongside their comrades taking with them as many creatures as they could before meeting their noble end. Such was the resolve of the fighting American at this battle. They fought not for ideology or freedom, politics or flags, but for the continuance of our species. On May 12, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue was secured, and the last of the Wendigos had been rooted out and eliminated. On that day, the American armed forces numbered 18,293. 
the names of the 7,849 who gave their lives adorn the wall of a black Washington War Memorial. They will never be forgotten as long as this nation stands. It is a casualty number too high to repeat again. We believed ourselves prepared as we went in, but no one could have fully anticipated the impact of that bloody conflict. It is our intention to take back every U.S. city by the end of the century, using what we learn each time to bring down this percentage. It will not rid us of the nomadic, wandering creatures on the plains, but the symbolic victory of reclaiming our homes will give us a powerful stronghold to return to each time, the better to range from, to rid ourselves of those that remain. Our experience and expertise in this process as a unified military force will result in a land free of the Wendigo, a land for our children, a land of the future. In 1881, President Grant declared the onset of the Reclamation War, an endeavor of mass cooperation and mobilization, the likes of which the world has never seen. The ultimate end being to wrest our nation back from the frenzied grip of the Wendigo, but also to repair the damage wrought for so many years, and to make us whole once more. Nathaniel Curtis, General of the Reunified States Army, Washington, D.C., November 1880. I'm able to count myself among those who managed to walk away from the battle at Shiloh in April 1862 of the 44,000 Confederate men who stepped up on that first day, one in four will be dead by the close of the next, which bore witness to our retreat. I remember vividly the horrors I saw on the field strewn with dying and dead on that first evening. Peach blossoms settled upon the bodies of Confederate and Union alike. It would have seemed almost peaceful to anyone unable to hear the screaming. Due to the nature of our weaponry and the frequent breakdown in tactics, it was commonplace for a conflict to descend into a sea of heaving bodies, beating one another to death in the mud, our uniforms so obscured by filth that it was often impossible to tell if the man you were fighting was of the opposing ethos. In truth, so many of the men in those fields were unified in their deep longing for home and the loved ones they were fighting for that politics, territories, the path of history faded to a dull roar. You simply survived or you did not. Pitching up in Manassas some fourteen years later, a battalion of southern fighters under my hastily organized command, I recognized shadows of that battlefield unity amongst the assembled survivors. While some made trouble and dug up old borderlines and grudges which impeded our passage, I was gratified that the majority simply laid down the ugliness of the past in the face of a new enemy that threatened to engulf us all. The next few years were based solely on assembly and preparation, gathering soldiers from all nearby corners of the surrounding states, 
fending off attacks from the creatures and fortifying our positions. More and more former Yankee soldiers found themselves not only under my command, but putting their faith in an old enemy. I have often found benefit in quiet and calm determination over jingoistic flag-waving as a means of inspiration. I also find this leads me to not overcompensate for the very real misgivings I have on a regular basis. Some leaders hide their weaknesses from those who follow, striving to appear as a paragon. I cannot relate to a paragon. They occupy a space in a man's mind best left for other products of fiction. No man is without fear, and the ones who are truly frighten me. And so I found myself commanding the entire reunified state's army as we marched upon the District of Columbia. I know why I was appointed and why I retain that position today. The 26,142 men have been trained for years against live Wendigos, but in nothing like the numbers we faced. The head of the army divided out and scoured through the streets in regimented processions. Many had expected that they would rush out to meet us in a vast wave, something we could once again throw our bodies against, flowing down 14th Street as some enormous fluid organism of charging savages. We had prepared for this with various firing line drills designed to dispatch them in stages before they reached us, using our ranged weaponry and their lack of it to our advantage. It was not like that at all. They are not mindless. They will not throw themselves at a group. Each one acted to preserve its own life, not in some highly coordinated fashion, but through innate instinct. We would experience sudden ambushes from above and below. Men venturing through doorways would find rooms swarming with them. Young deer and cattle and horses and other animals roamed the now overgrown streets. Yet from the remains we found in every hollow and alcove, it was clear they were also feeding off one another. We were in their hunting ground. They would hide and strike. And when we were off guard and retreating, the attacks would be redoubled as they sensed our moments of weakness. Often in the panic, men would be clipped by our own gunfire, and the soldiers shrewdly resorted to close-range combat to limit this. Far too many were bitten and infected in the melee. Back during the Civil War, there was something called the Rebel Yell. This was inspired by a similar whooping that the American Indian brought with him to battle. It started at the pit of your stomach and erupted out of you in effigy of a fox-hunting yet, borne up in a corkscrew motion to culminate in the screeching cacophony of a cougar. It was, to the Yankees, quite terrifying to hear caterwauling from amid the trees as the Confederate forces closed in. We did this to break the spirits and indeed freeze the tracks of our quarry. As it happens... There can be few men or women alive who have not heard the call of the Wendigo. That harsh bark and screech that sets the hairs on the back of your neck near permanently aloft. I must now ask you to imagine that cry echoing round the darkened ruin of a library or municipal building, and in turn being caught up and joined by dozens, hundreds, sometimes a thousand more, 
The deafening shrieks emanating from every grate, every burned-out archway, every awning. I speak to men daily who will ask that that sound never be made around them, not even in jest. The rebel yell was a device we employed as a group to control our own fear. Now we must hold our tongues and bide the silence, the better to control the situation. This cry of the Wendigo has been turned on us. But this was not a swift defeat. It was a slow victory, and over the months it took to root out every creature, the men and women of the reunified army adapted to and met the onslaught with bravery and equal cunning. Every night we pulled out from the city to rest and recuperate, staving off the likelihood of a nighttime attack. Those came nonetheless, but by them we were prepared, and in fortified positions, sleeping in shifts and keeping watch on the city limits. Every morning, freshly rested units would re-infiltrate the city with rear guard groups clearing and disposing of bodies. We adopted new tactics to compensate for the initially unexpected Specialized units were formed with weapons shortened and muffled to dispose of indoor and underground infestations. The truly starving Wendigos were some of the hardest to manage. Their ferocity interrupted the processes that tell a body it has been damaged. Those were situations whose outcomes involved far too much spread of infection, as the creatures behaved in the manner of rabid hounds no longer seeking sustenance or safety. For some who were bitten or otherwise infected, victory for the Wendigo would not be conceded easily. They fought on, and made the most use of themselves that they could with their final hours. A new, posthumously awarded medal has been commissioned for exactly this valorous act that exceeded previous lines of service. The Grave Duty Medal of Honor adorned with a distinctive embossed red enamel shield. This reinforces the good that a man can do with his life and reminds their families and all who remember them that even in the paralyzing grip of fear of a now certain death, anyone can make a difference with their further actions, no matter how small. This is why I freely admit my misgivings. A man without fear has nothing to lose but also nothing to fight for. It is the bravery required to overcome that fear that makes a soldier, or indeed any person, truly admirable. By degrees we beat them back, but not without sustaining heavy casualties. By April the numbers had thinned substantially enough that it became relatively safe to occupy. I recall a man being brought to me who had been discovered dug in on the upper floors of a hotel. He had held out there for six years, hunting and surviving. His complexion was scarred and pockmarked, and I now suspect he was one of the few cases of immunity that we have discovered. Unfortunately, his mind had gone. Four soldiers were killed bringing him in, and looking into his sunken eyes, gazing out of a face buried in the wild, unkempt hair of an entirely uncivilized man. I saw the future of our nation, should we not manage to band together. Few would survive, and at such a cost, that any worth in doing so would be swallowed up in unhappy consequence. 
From an old journal belonging to this man, I determined that his name was Clam. I told Clam he no longer had to fight, and that he could rest. We hoped to learn as much of the Wendigo as we could from his experience, but he died that very night, and only his earlier journal entries comprise enough of the last of that man he was to illuminate our enemy. I regret the loss of life this campaign entails, but I regret neither its course nor the striving for its ultimate goal. I hereby welcome all new recruits to our army. May you do a great courtesy to the memory of those who died winning back these years by likewise giving this war your every ounce of strength, determination, and courage. You have been listening to Section 7 of the Cartographer's Handbook, Remastered, Reclaiming Our Cities, written by Alexander Shaw. Thomas W. Arlington and Nathaniel Curtis, performed by Alex Shaw. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Death of Kings and Dreams Become Real, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lutsch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chesham. <laughs>